Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald. A 1999 report on agrobiodiversity by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations tells us that 75% of the world's food is generated from only 12 plants and 5 animals. To add to that, over the last 100 years, 75% of plant genetic diversity has been lost, and 30% of the world's livestock breeds are at risk of extinction. In the early 2000s alone, our planet was losing as many as six breeds of livestock to extinction every month. On this edition of Georgia College Connections, I talk with Georgia College faculty member Cynthia Alby. Together with her husband, Charlie Vaughn, they own and operate Shangri-La, a 27-acre farm in Gordon, Georgia, dedicated to the preservation of Gulf Coast native sheep in the perennial Mastiff breed of dogs that help them manage their herd. Cynthia is joining me today to talk about the larger issue of the world's shrinking agro-biodiversity and what she's doing to affect that issue from her 27-acre corner of the world, Shangri-La. Cynthia Alby, welcome back to the WRGC studio in Georgia College Connections. Great to be here. Now, to start off our conversation, uh, I want to talk about uh, one of the things that I've perceived from it. Um, as an American who can go to the Walmart at any hour of the day and choose from a variety of meats, cheese, and produce, how do I reconcile that reality with the other one in which as many as six breeds of livestock are going extinct each month. We very rarely buy meat from places like Walmart anymore because we just know too much about how that meat is produced. Most of it is what we would call corporate farming. And of course, the meat that you're buying at a place like Walmart is generally raised in very poor conditions. 10,000 turkeys all in one building crowded together, animals like cattle and sheep on dirty, filthy feedlots, again, just smashed in together. It's a terrible life. And I do eat meat, and um, I probably will continue to eat meat, but I'm moving much more towards eating meat that has been more sustainably raised on regular farms, you know, by regular people cows that have been roaming out on pasture um, and have led a good life. And we also know that that meat is far more healthy. So it isn't just about the animals, but also about our own health, I think. It's interesting to think about these types of sheep and other animals that have been bred as industrial breeds because they've been bred to be less intelligent you want animals that aren't going to give you any trouble or give one another any trouble. Um, so you've got these really unintelligent animals in cramped conditions. They don't need to be healthy. We can just cram them full of antibiotics and other medications, and we do. They're often very short-lived um, because they're usually killed very early on in their lives. And they don't need to be especially flavorful. No one cares about that that much anymore. Um, the chicken of today tastes vastly different from the chicken of 20, 30, 40 years ago. 
Now, of course, um, I, I believe you're talking about like corporate agriculture. Mm -hmm. I guess the uh, people who support that part of our agriculture would say that there's a trade-off involved in that we do these things to try to create more food with less inputs in that. I, I would also um, I counter with, um, but yet hunger still exists. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing these things. We're changing the food chain in, in such a way uh, to support purportedly produce more uh, with less inputs, but yet we still have not been able to affect the larger lingering issue of world hunger. Uh, what is it that exactly we're doing um, as we have changed our heritage of agriculture um, over the course of uh, perhaps maybe the last two or three generations? I do think that it's, it's a sticky problem. How do we feed a growing population um, with you know, for example, organic fruits and vegetables and heritage breed animals. And it might not be entirely possible. It could certainly be done better. And um, there are a lot of us who probably can and should be doing what we can to, to lessen that. Will, will we be able to feed the world um, if we do that completely? Maybe not. I, I, I myself am kind of a proponent of why are we, why are we breeding so many humans? Um, you know, we're in charge of this. Uh, we don't have to have the world population grow and grow and grow indefinitely, but we probably will. Yes, uh, we probably will. Uh, and that is a, a course of a whole nother topic, yes, yes. And a whole nother show. But, you know, let's try to bring it back to um, just uh, these decisions that we make as, as consumers. Um, again, I started off our show talking about uh, walking into that Walmart and perceiving that there's a great amount of selection that you have there. Um, but you're saying that that selection is really only just a fraction of um, uh, what traditionally would have been thought of agriculture. Uh, so can you tell me, when we think about shrinking agrobiodiversity, what are some of the animals that we're talking about uh, no longer being on those shelves at the grocer, mm -hmm. uh, no longer even being uh, cohabitants with us on this earth? Yeah, a, a particularly interesting example is the turkey. There are 46 million turkeys in the United States. 9,000 of those are um, heritage breeds. All the others are one single breed, the broad-breasted white turkey. Virtually every turkey that you buy at the market is going to be that kind of turkey. Um, they're relatively tasteless compared to the heritage breeds. They are 100% artificially inseminated because at this point, their breasts are so heavy that they have trouble walking, much less mating. They physically cannot mate. They have to be artificially inseminated. So that's what we've come to. I have a, a friend who is breeding the heritage breed turkeys, and he says you absolutely cannot believe the difference in flavor. Um, that it's just stunning to him. And could you characterize that to someone who may be listening and only knows um, those turkeys mm -hmm. that come frozen um, from the deep freeze each November? Yeah, I think people worry that if they eat a heritage breed turkey, that it's going to be gamey, like wild turkey. But wild mm -hmm. turkey is really very different. The heritage breeds are going to taste like you expect turkey to taste, but much more so. Next time you eat turkey, try to taste it. And I think you will find that it really does not taste like much. 
And so really, and even when you were answering that, I was thinking, uh, gamey. Well, how would we describe gamey? Mm. What would be that difference? I mean, unfortunately, I hate to be on this side of it, but you know, when you're when you're talking about heritage uh, versus that butterball that we think of. In my mind, and you know, I probably gets an angry email or two. I almost think of uh, think about food and think about food when you add a little MSG and that kind of hardiness that um, that uh, simple additive adds to it, and how it's a flavor enhancer. And so mm -hmm. that's why I kind of think of when I think about uh, what we might uh, be able to relate in our own minds from our own experience those differences back to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, we talked about uh, taste being one of these things that's lost as we move from an agriculture to more of a monoculture. Uh, but are there any other effects that this change to a, a more sleek production of food is having on us as people, on our planets, or maybe even just the livestock that we consume? One of the things we don't think very much is about um, how we're losing our history. For example... Dominique chickens are in danger of extinction. They were the first breed developed in America. To me, it would be sad to lose the first breed of chicken developed in America. Tuna sheep originally came to this country as gifts to George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Cotton patch geese used to be really prevalent all through the Southeast. They were used to weed cotton patches and corn patches and so forth. The Devon cattle were brought here by the pilgrims. So these are all breeds that are in danger of extinction that, to me, are really a big part of our history. So I find that part kind of interesting. And then heritage breeds just offer us things that other breeds don't. For example, you've got types of chickens that lay blue or green eggs or even brown eggs, you know. And for people who maybe want to have small farms and be a little more self-sufficient, they need the heritage breeds because they survive well and they're healthy. So if we were to lose them, people who wanted to have animals on a small farm probably couldn't. We're losing a lot of farmers. These corporate farms are just so mechanized that they don't need many humans. And so just the sheer number of farming jobs drops precipitously year by year. It's shocking. Mm, that's interesting how uh, this change in this one aspect of this larger spectrum of subjects that we're talking about is regenerated throughout. But uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time in this segment, so we're going to take a short break right now. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, I am talking with Georgia College faculty member Cynthia Albee. In addition to her time in the classroom, uh, she spends a lot of time on her farm, Shangri-La, where they are preserving Gulf Coast native sheep in the perennial Mastiff breed of dogs that help them manage the herd. Uh, stay tuned. We've got more to talk about on this edition of Georgia College Connections.
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. If you are just joining us, we are talking about a troubling trend in declining agrobiodiversity here in our home, um, but also really around the world. I'm joined in this WRGC studio today by Cynthia Albee. Her and her husband, Charlie Vaughn, are the couple behind Shangri-La, a 27-acre farm in Gordon, Georgia, dedicated to the preservation of Gulf Coast native sheep. Now, in that last segment, we were talking about uh, the larger context in which you may have started this farm. I don't know yet because I haven't asked that question, <laughs> so let's start there. Uh, please, could you tell us, what is the story of Shangri-La? When I started working at Georgia College, um, my husband and I were thinking it'd be nice to have a lot of land. Land is inexpensive around here, so we bought a lot of acreage, and we turned some of it into pasture land, and then we thought, what are we going to do with this? And so we started looking into possibilities, and you know, horses and cattle are so big, goats are fun, but they're a little bit of trouble. We eventually settled on sheep, and then when I started researching the different types of sheep, that's when I learned about endangered livestock. That had never occurred to me before that livestock might be endangered. And we thought, well, wouldn't that be interesting? And they're one of the only breeds that do well in the heat and humidity of the Southeast. They were brought over in the 1500s by the Spanish, and they evolved here. And so they do really well here when almost no other sheep breed would. And it's uh, such an interesting history of these Gulf Coast native sheep. Uh, of course, um, as you said, they were brought here by the Spanish. How did they get that name? They were initially brought into the Gulf Coast area, and they aren't truly native. They just started to, I think, seem native to people because they had um, lived here for so long. And the Spanish liked to just let their livestock r- run wild, and then they would just round them up every once in a while to, say, shear them um, to you know, get some meat, but mostly they evolved kind of as wild animals. Was there much evolution in their species in that, um, as you described, the Spaniards allowed them to run wild? That sounds uh, fairly similar to some of perhaps the livestock that our native peoples would have depended upon, if, if at all, mm-hmm. as well. Um, so has there been much evolution in that? Or are they really kind of like looking back at a time capsule of that time um, at this point almost 500 years ago? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of years of having to survive in a new land. So only the very healthiest, the smartest, the most wily are going to be able to make it. The ones also that can take the heat and humidity, which I'm sure a lot of those initial sheep did not like that so well. And of course, I myself grew up in the suburbs. I'm not really familiar with the sheep, except for the ones that I see jumping over the fence post in my dreams. Um, Could you kind of delineate the differences between uh, these Gulf Coast native sheep and what we might commonly perceive of as sheep? I think if you saw our sheep, you would think that they looked very like classical sheep. You would say, yeah, those those look like I expect sheep to, to look. What makes them a little bit different is they have less wool on their bellies, on their legs, around their head. That's part of what makes them well-suited to the southeast. But for people who don't know sheep, I think you would find them quite sheepy. Of course, the goal was not just to, uh, shall we say, uh, sit around and live with sheep. They are livestock. And, of course, livestock, um, they are 
destined to either produce some kind of labor or some kind of commodity product, um, whether that be uh, the meat, the milk, um, or in sheep's case, wool. Um, how are y'all helping these sheep live out their destiny? And we, our main goal is to produce breeding stock for other people. So other people who want to get um, flocks started would often start with ours because we give them a lot of attention when they're young, so they tend to be very friendly. But we also shear them once a year and end up with a lot of wool. So I've been making wool products. I make felted jewelry and scarves, and we do a lot of documentary photography with them. This year we're going to have a lot of our wool spun into yarn, so um, all our local knitters can have some locally raised heritage breed yarn. So those are the kinds of things we do with them. How do those things contribute back uh, to this issue of livestock conservancy? For us, because we're breeding them, we're increasing the numbers. Uh, and that's one of our main goals is to simply increase the numbers as much as we can. Our, our farm is small, so we can't have very large numbers, but um, that's our main goal. As we think about animals evolving, animals adapting to their current environment, you would think that uh, perhaps a breeding of different species of livestock animals uh, may be something that would benefit them in the long run. But that runs counter to what uh, some of the concepts of livestock conservancy are trying to do. Can you talk about that aspect of trying to keep these species of animals as close to what we traditionally believe them to be? Right. So if Gulf Coast sheep, for example, are um, particularly well suited to the heat and humidity, we want to make sure we preserve that. Um, they're also unusually healthy. Um, most of the breeds of sheep that we have in the United States have to be pumped full, I'm telling you, with wormer, like every single month, different wormers. And so because um, one of the great things about the Gulf Coast sheep is that it doesn't need that kind of input, we need to make sure that we are breeding to maintain that level of health. And so you're trying to just uh, keep as true as possible those attributes that have made them successful. Exactly. Right. Now, from what you've described in this segment, it doesn't sound like you are breeding these sheep for food. But some people do. Absolutely. I, I was wondering if you might address that paradigm in which um, you, there are folks out there who are trying to preserve these animals. Um, and one of the ways that they're doing them is by actually consuming them themselves. Yeah. My, uh, my friend Mark um, raises the same type of sheep, and he is raising them more for meat. When I tell people that, they say, well, that just sounds crazy. Like, why would you eat a critically endangered breed of animal? Think about this. You need a lot of females, but only one male for every, say, 30, 40 females. But you're going to get 50% males most years. What are you going to do with all, the, all those males running around all over the place? They don't really serve the purpose of keeping the breed alive. And so they often do get eaten. I don't think people should feel badly about eating heritage breed livestock. They've generally lived um, a fantastic life up till that point. And what we need is farmers who are willing and able to breed heritage breeds. And they are not going to be able to make a living unless people are willing to purchase that meat. 
And so that kind of added a publicity around those specific breeds in a strange way, mm-hmm. well, not too strange when you think about agriculture, actually contributes back towards the conservation of them. Absolutely. Well, it's happened again. We are out of time in this segment, so we're going to take another short break. But if you're just joining us, you are listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we are talking about preserving a specific breed of sheep, the Gulf Coast native sheep. Um, To talk about that issue, we're talking with Cynthia Albee. She is a faculty member here at Georgia College, but she and her husband, Charlie Vaughn, own and operate Shangriba, a 27-acre farm in Gordon, Georgia. Stay tuned. There's more to talk about on this edition of Georgia College Connection. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. If you are just joining us, we're talking with Cynthia Albee about Shangri-La. She is a Georgia College faculty member. Shangri-La is, I guess, your passion project Mm. outside of your work here at the Georgia College. Uh, This is a 27-acre farm in Gordon, Georgia, that you and your husband tend um, to preserve Gulf Coast native sheep. We talked about them in the close of our last segment, uh, but the sheep are not the only endangered animal you're working with at Shangri-La. You're also preserving a breed of working dog to help you tend those sheep. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about them? Yes, um, we breed um, Perinian Mastiffs. They are really quite rare. We're, um, at the moment, the fifth breeder in the United States. They are a dog from the Spanish side of the Pyrenees Mountains, and they are quite large. They top out around 150 pounds. Some of the males can be up to 200. And they are what are called livestock guardian dogs. People are pretty familiar with herding dogs that round up and move sheep. We don't need that. We just shake a grain bucket and they follow us wherever we want them to go. But what we do need is someone out there all the time making sure that they are safe. Out in the country, you've got loose dogs, coyotes, all kinds of things that could be harmful to sheep. And so these are dogs that their job is to protect. And when you think about biodiversity, dog breeds are particularly interesting because it took thousands of years to turn wolves um, from animals that wanted to eat sheep somehow into dogs that almost consider them part of the family and are willing to you know, lay with them and protect them. And so that heritage is particularly important to preserve. And so I have two questions about um, these Mastiff dogs. Uh, the first one, you said, of course, they are from the Spanish side of the Pyrenees. Did they come to the New World with the sheep? No, they did not. Um, they came to the United States, um, I think, in the 80s. Um, they had once been um, very popular in Spain, and um, then in the early 1900s with Spanish wars and world wars, 
that's when their numbers really declined. There was a lot of starvation in Spain, and it was difficult to feed really large breeds. And so they became almost completely extinct in their native Spain. And one man decided, I'm going to keep this from happening, and started gathering good genetic examples and breeding them. And now they're in a number of different countries, but they are very rare. And within the canine world, are there a lot of endangered breeds of dogs out there? And if and how does their arc compare um, with this Pyrenean Mastiff? Uh, there are quite a few breeds that are endangered. To me, you really have to think about what is it about a given breed of dog that's special and how important is it to save that. In some dogs, they don't have any genetic heritage that's unusually special. But I think with livestock guardians, you really do have that. Some breeds are mostly bred for their appearance and to be pets. But with livestock guardians, you have to have a dog who for thousands of years has been bred for that purpose and only that. Yeah. Well, we're running out of time um, for our program today. Um, I, I was wondering if you could talk to our radio audience about how they might learn more or, or get involved in conservation agriculture. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend that people visit the Livestock Conservancy website. Um, consider donating to them. Um, it's just a fascinating group. I think you know most people would be surprised by what they learn there. If you can buy heritage breed products, that's fantastic. Our local green market has all kinds of things like that. Uh, but think about not just meat and eggs, but yarn, fiber art, things like that. Support businesses who support heritage breeds. For example, Georgia Bob's has a exhibit of photography from our farm, um, which is a, a wonderful way of supporting us. There are restaurants, like um, a well-known one is Five and Ten in Athens. Um, almost all the meat that they serve is um, from heritage breeds because they know it tastes a lot better and they want to preserve the breeds. Um, you could breed them yourself. I know that sounds a little crazy, but my husband and I are both from suburban Atlanta. What did we know about sheep? Nothing. But, I mean, it was really fascinating to have to learn all that, and we're continuing to learn. Uh, you can do it. Poultry is particularly easy. You know, you probably know a number of people who have a few chickens. If you're going to have a few chickens, make them heritage breed. I think you'll like the eggs better or the meat better. People should try it. And then just for learning more, I would recommend that people explore what's called the Ark of Taste. It's a group that is dedicated to preserving heritage foods of all kinds, meat and plants and any foods that are a major part of a culture. And um, how might people learn more about uh, what you and your husband are doing at Shangri-La? Well, we have a website, www.shangri-la.com. One um, A or two A's with the Ba. Oh, that's true. Ba has two A's. We have open houses pretty regularly. Usually on the very first page that you land on, it will say when our next open house is going to be. We usually have a number of them, especially in the spring when we have new lambs. People love to come out and see the lambs. So that's a particularly fun time to come out and see us. Well, Cynthia Albee, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to our audience about Livestock Conservancy and how you are affecting this issue at your 27-acre farm, Shangri-La. Great being here.